That's right. Welcome back to another episode of Political Football. Thousands of people have been writing in asking us to come back with another episode. It's been a while between drinks, but we're both a couple of young professionals now. Joe doing his bit for the, the public service and, and for, for teaching and me delivering a better policy and economic future for, for young Australians all across the country, including in regional New South Wales. Um, what we heard there was hopelessly devoted to you, one of Olivia Newton-John's top-rated hits, uh, sold over 100 million uh, albums uh, over a lifetime. Uh, unfortunately, she passed away yesterday, obviously very famous for her role in Greece. Uh, and hopelessly devoted to you has provided me a lot of comfort um, after a lot of Tigers losses over recent years, <laughs> um, including on the weekend we lost to the, to the cellar dwellers, the Newcastle Knights. One week we beat Brisbane. Uh, one week we beat beaten the Cowboys outside of a, a robbery in FNQ. Uh, and then next minute we're losing 14 10 to the Newcastle Knights. But... It's the nature of the beast. You, you, you come to loathe and you come to love it. Uh, and just Olivia, I want you to know that uh, you've provided me a lot of comfort over the years with that sort of song. Uh, welcome back, Joe. Thanks, mate. How, how, how are we going? Yeah. How, how are things? Uh, I'm all right, mate. Um, good to be back. And, uh, you know, they couldn't keep us away for too long. Um, we're hopelessly devoted to shit chat and uh, <laughs> digging deep, digging deep for the uh, local community of uh, the inner west and uh, our surrounding regions. You know, Absolutely. The world does revolve around us. Exactly, exactly. At least that's what I tell myself every, day, every time I get, my, get wake up in the morning. Um, but in terms of what this podcast will be about, I will be looking at the first two weeks in the 47th parliament, a new parliament. Um, so we'll be looking at what policy made the agenda there, what action items got passed, uh, and how things have changed down there in the nation's capital. Obviously, your hometown, so you know, plus close to your heart, and again, we do serve the good people of the nation's capital as well on the podcast as well. Uh, and then on the sports side, we'll be talking a few different things. Uh, we'll be talking a bit of rugby league, as always, uh, a bit of Ricky Stewart stuff. I know you've got some things to say on, in relation to uh, his uh, fiascos going on. It's uh-huh. taken... Rugby league will by storm. A lot of dwelling has been done on this um, sticky situation. Um, another key point we'll be talking about, should rugby league have an ICAC? Um, that's something that I'll be a strong proponent of. Um, and maybe we can get it as part of the federal legislation that gets off the ground later this year. Uh, and then obviously the Commonwealth Games review. We'll do a Commonwealth Games review. Um, people say the Commonwealth Games becoming more and more irrelevant. Uh, but people, those people don't understand diplomatic and foreign relations and understand it's a huge aspect of our soft power it's just the uh tall poppy syndrome yeah. mate going overseas and completely decimating countries that have le- <laughs> less resources than us and less people than us outside of england um and canada yeah and uh you know and going over there and just decimating winning, winning gold from the pool to the track ripping and cycling unbelievable uh, but there was some great moments so we'll re- review those and we'll walk through some of our top gold medal moments but uh, in the meantime, let's get things started, as we always do with the policy stuff, give you um, some discussion to think about, some, some light bulb moments perhaps that can trigger some things about you know, how, what the policy world's evolving, some key issues. Um, so in the 47th par- Parliament, introduced, obviously there's been a big change down there in Canberra. The Labor Party has moved from the opposition benches to the government benches. Um, and there's been an increase in the crossbench. I think there's, a few, what, 15 members now, I think, on the crossbench in the lower house and, and a swathe of, 
of Greens and, and minor party candidates in uh, in the Senate as well. So um, that was a result of that uh, of the election. Um, sort of big gains for Labor in New South Wales and uh, and WA and some in Victoria. Then the the independents also made a made a ripple through the traditional Liberal Party base in uh, in Melbourne and, and Sydney as well. So really interesting to see what's there. But as always, we try and tackle the policy over the politics here on political football. <laughs> and um, we're going to start with one area that got a lot of attention during the election and one area that got a lot of attention during the first two weeks of Parliament. That's aged care. So um, as last year, the Aged Care Royal Commission uh, Aged Care Quality and Safety Royal Commission findings came out um, and nothing really changed in terms of the legislation there, but uh, the new government's come in and passed the Aged Care and Other Legislation Amendment Bill. So ushering reforms, including some highlights, a new Aged Care funding one, we're replacing the old and outdated one, um, the Department of Health and Aged Care to publish star ratings for residential aged care services by the end of 2022, so looking to boost um, transparency and accountability there so you can actually see how each agency is ranked um, or each aged care facility is ranked and then Could that be a bit of a stitch up? The star rating? Yeah. Well I mean it's, oh, a lot of this stuff so it comes down to delivery and implementation you'd have to make sure it's probably being done by the same yeah, team know, within the department. you got one one aged care facility in your local area say you're living rural and She's got a one star rating. Yeah, well, and then the next one's two or three hours away. Yeah, well, that's, that's a good. That's a good point that you bring up. Bring would you up want and, you know? Would you want Gam Gams in your one star? <laughs> well, or, certainly not. She's be a bit stitched up. But the whole point is that with the star rating, you you'll know that now. You know, it won't be a point of saying, "Well, you, you've got an aged care facility. Why don't you go in there?" In theory, it's good. Yeah. Sometimes places just know their shit. Yeah, well, and I, they just don't care. Absolutely. But, I mean, look, the head's in the right spot. I'd yeah. love to see. Yeah. I want to see it, mate. I want to see it. And that does mean, you know, say, say if they're, it's hard when it's to say there's a monopoly in town, there's only one or two in town, but if there is multiple in town and, and one gets more star ratings than others, others, then obviously that would attract the demand for, for that service and then that puts pressure on the other ones to sort of lift their game in terms okay. of competition. So there will be some sort of measure in place to like those ones that kind of know their shit but don't care that they're shit. They just keep well, yeah, on going because yeah. they think... know they're going to get like they know they're going to get business no matter what. Yep. Because if they're their only place in in the area, um, but there is going to be a bit of accountability. Is that what you're saying to me, Tom? That's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying you'll be able to obviously those with five stars. Be almost like a, I don't want to compare it to hotels because it's on the same thing, <laughs> but it's like a hotel, right? You're not going to go and stay in a two and a half star hotel when you're paying three hundred dollars a night. You know, if, if you're going to pay three hundred dollars a night, you go stay in a five star hotel. Oh, absolutely. So it's the same principle with this aged care, right? Like those it. those ones doing the right things, um, and, and and putting putting the money that residents and the government put into their own care, because there is certainly enough money that goes around in aged care. I think it's thirty eight thousand dollars on on average per person that gets spent by the government on aged care per year. So the the money is there. There's been a big increase in funding allocation, but it's about the quality of the spending. I've been over that, I think, in previous podcasts. So this is one of those measures. I like it. A star rating system, right, puts pressure on the on the crap ones to lift their game and it exposes them and then the government can take action on those ones and it also rewards the ones who are doing the right thing and delivering a really quality service for, for that. So I think that's the role that plays. Five stars for me, mate. Yeah, yeah. Um, then on, on top of that, there's also included measures to extend the Serious Incident Response Scheme 
to all in-home care providers from the 1st of December this year. Um, so that's, I suppose that's another transparency aspect as well. So, you know, if the same facility keeps racking up serious incidences, they're being reported and um, people who are looking to go, go into aged care or people who have family in aged care, they can look at that register or they can report the, the incident and then that gives a greater transparency and um, oversight for the government in relation to those ones where there's serious incidents taking place and like understanding it. why they're occurring. Um, again, I suppose a lot of this comes down to the implementation, but just looking at um, the, some of the policy areas here, I think that that's the, the motivation behind it. Um, there's a, again, going to transparency and accountability is a new code of conduct for approved providers, aged care workers and governing persons. Again, from 1st of December 2022. So again, establishing consistency across the board, right? And I think that's where it's really struggled, right? You have you know a lot of agencies or a lot of aged care providers doing the right thing, but then there's a, a gulf between it because there's been a lack of oversight, especially with the privatisation of aged care as opposed to sort of the you know the public system that we deal with at a state level. So I think that's a really important those metrics around transparency and accountability. You know that. You know, there will be some way to go and there'll be some teething issues as you get these things off the ground. But these are recommendations that have been delivered by an evidence-based Royal Commission. And that's the point of a Royal Commission. A Royal Commission is not just to produce, you know, uh, recommendations for the sake of them, just so it looks like you're pretending to do something. The recommendation should be tangible actions that can be taken. Bit of action. Yeah, and that's the thing with this bill, hopefully, that gets delivered with it. Um, and in addition to that, this past week... Um, I think back end of last week, the government put forward a submission to the Fair Work Commission. So that's the um, industrial um, body that looks after sort of wages, the same body that gave the 5.2% increase to minimum wage workers earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Um, they put forward a submission saying they want a significant and meaningful pay rise for aged care workers. So they haven't put a dollar figure on it. So I don't think they want to attach themselves to that, so if they don't, that doesn't get up, but... The word significant and meaningful, I think, are substantial here because that's sort of leaning towards a higher than a lower pay rise. And when you actually think about what aged care workers earn, I think a, care, a minimum carer gets $23 an hour or around that, around that mark. It's not enough. It's, it's, <clears throat> and, and for the work they have, you know, they're looking after our most vulnerable people. And, and the way you can put it is you get more stuck in a shelf than you get for looking after someone with complex needs in an aged care home. Mm. You know, and because we can't do it because we're working or whatever the requirements are, or the reason they're in the aged care home first off, is that the really sort of society that we want to live in? Well, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Um, this, the, basically, the exact same thing is happening right now in education, um, which is a big issue that I feel strongly about. Um, I mean, I can't compare it. As you it. should, Joe. Can't compare it, though, because it is people's loved ones and lives that are, you know, hanging in the balance often, which is different to education. Um, in in some ways more than others but yeah i guess um pay rise is very necessary as it is in education as well you'd love to see it um we won't get into the education part now but we'll do on an upcoming episode we'll do it we'll do it i'd love to bloody rip and tear through that we'll get my man jason jason clare on it um the new education minister some people call him the rob Lowe of australian politics but um i'll leave that for um, yeah, we'll, some others early to decide. Days, mate. We'll, we'll see about that. <laughs> um, more so, just in terms of his looks. Um, <laughs> the so yeah, we've got that. So we've got the aged care um, pay rise that's going to be decided shortly um, in relation to the aged care act, and obviously they'll have some budget implications coming. The unions supported the twenty five percent pay jump, which is five dollars an hour, so it'll be twenty three to twenty eight dollars an hour. 
which again, when you say 25%, people are like, whoa, 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 25%, I'm only getting 3%, what the hell? But when you actually look at the dollar figures, you know, obviously the lower the pay you're on, the, you know, the more the percentage is going to jump, but it's only a relatively small amount nominally. So that's um, something that, that's, uh, will, you know, I think it will be really important. And again, show the signal that we're sort of maybe we're turning a corner in terms of what sort of society that we live in, the, the, the work that we value. I think we've really gone away from that. And even without pontificating, you know, work is work. Hmm. Work is work. As I say, leaders lead. It's as profound as I can get these days. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll leave it in relation to HQ and that because we'll move on to our next topic. Um, and that is energy policy. Uh, Nick McNamara's favourite area, given his uh, staunch support of, of the coalition. Um, but that's neither here nor there. The, uh, so the government has legislated for the 2030 and 2050 targets. So 2030, 43% reductions, uh, I think 2005 levels. Uh, and then 2050, obviously net zero, carried on from the previous government, but it was legislated as part of this new bill uh, put forward. Now, perhaps the most important next step with this is, obviously I think everyone knew this was coming, the, co- the crossbench uh, got support so from the, from the independents who were elected um, and also the Greens supported as a first step. Obviously, they're calling for more action, but they saw this as an important first step, which was good. I think it sort of shows that we're maybe moving past the conflict that we have, just butting heads, you know, not getting anywhere. You know, we actually have some progress and we understand that reform is actually an iterative process and it's not something that just comes, you know, in waves, maybe occasionally during like the Whitlam eras, but usually it's a, it's a hard-fought thing that's done inch by inch. Uh, in terms of policy study. Mm. But I suppose the next one, in terms of actual de- delivery, is the Powering Australia policy. So that's actually probably where the federal government will play a, a big role with the Australian energy market operator, AEMO, in terms of getting the transmission investment needed to uplift the capability of the, of the grid. So it's one thing to get these renewables going, but then you've also got to connect them into the grid so they can power you know, towns, cities and the regions. Um, and you know, New South Wales government doing a lot of work on the renewable energy zones all across New South Wales, down in the Snowy Valleys, Hunter Central Coast, Illawarra, my area, my favourite part of New South Wales, the Central Rest and the Arana region, um, and and the New England New England zone as well. So um, I suppose there's there's a lot of iterative work, iterative work to do there, but um, it's good to see that getting off the ground um, and. In the words of Ross Garneau, we can definitely become a renewable energy superpower, just making sure that we get the most maximum benefit of it and the local communities that provide this electricity can get benefit from it as well. It's not just powering the big cities. Um, so that's that one done. I think we, I just wanted to touch on that one. I think it was an important part. Uh, but perhaps the most impactful one, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, given your roles in, in education and frontline services, um, was the enshrinement of the right of 10 days domestic and family violence leave. Now, I think this is huge. I think I've been fortunate or not fortunate, but I've done some research on domestic and family violence and just the, the cost of it to women and children in particular, but also it can affect men as well. Um, this, this gives uh, people the agency to not be afraid to leave a domestic violence situation or a toxic environment for fear of financial or economic implication, which I think is a huge step forward because a lot of it is tied to economic and social mobility. There's a huge disincentive previous to this being introduced whereby if you did leave an abusive relationship or a situation where domestic and family violence was prevalent, then you could be completely isolated. You'd be homeless overnight. 
you'd have no money to go and spend anything of it to feed yourself, to feed your children mm. for crying out loud. So this was initially won by the unions, I think in May. So that was for two, for all award, award workers. So it was two point six million workers. But this legislation actually extends it to a further eight point four four million workers. So nearly all of the workforce, I imagine the the full permanent workforce, um, this covers. Um, and we just know how prevalent this is. We, one in four women have experienced physical or sexual violence since the age of 15 by a current or former intimate partner. I think that's from the uh, domestic violence study the government does. And then um, it also costs 18000 on average to escape a violent relationship um, in Australia. So economic security there is a big factor. And there's some dollar figures around it. And often when you think about these things, you think people say, oh, how much is that going to cost? It's going to be unsustainable. But you actually look at there, you've got the dollar figure there and you, you do the maths, one in four, one in four women, and then $18,000 per time they would wanted to leave a violent relationship that falls on them personally. They can now have the economic security. They're not, not going to lose their job. They're not going to be homeless. They're not going to have to make a decision about you know, immediate, in the, at least in the immediate sense of feeding their children. So it's a big gain, it's a big social gain, um, and I'm, I'm all for it, and I think this is a really great policy. Do you know, do you know, Tom, whether if they take, if you take domestic violence leave, will that make their life more complicated? I'm all for it. I'm just, I just want to know. Will that make their life more complicated in terms of, if you apply for domestic violence leave, is there policy around your your employer having to report that you've taken that leave? And will that report result in you know, you know, when like a lot of a lot of families face issues with domestic violence reporting where if the partner who's violent knows something's been reported, the domestic violence can get worse. Yep. Um so is there policy around like anonymity or sort of like not the employer not being able to, you know? I think, that, I think that's probably in the minutiae of the detail, the, the negotiating table, but I would definitely think there is privacy classifications around it. I, don't, I think it would be a breach of the employee-employee contract. Because I, yeah, Declar- I just hope, Declaring leave. I just yeah. hope for the sake of the people taking that leave that, they're not opening themselves up to further like harm, which is I guess why care has to be taken with the policy. But it's the perfect place to start, yeah. and it is the right step in the right direction. I just hope they're supported beyond that day of leave that they're taking. I hope they're supported beyond that yeah. you know, weeks, months, years yeah. in advance. And that comes to the support services and the infrastructure around it. And this is just one cog in in a whole network of how you manage domestic and family violence relationships. So it doesn't, you know, completely wrought someone of, of, of what they worked for and and their economic and, and uh, you know housing security. Great step. No, um, but yeah, I think that goes in the middle. Like just practically, when you think about it, you know, say say just say Jenny's in a violent relationship with a partner, she decides to leave, applies for the pay, uh, you know, paid domestic and family violence leave for the ten days for work, so she can go and remove herself from the situation of immediate danger. Yeah. Um, you're not going to have her boss. I would think this would be part of it. Is her boss going straight? Oh, look at Jenny. She's weak. She's gone on on domestic. Yeah, but I just mean leave. more in terms of like the employer having to notify the authorities in terms of their, you know, the risk to that employer. Yeah. Whether they're like whether normal employers in jobs that aren't usually mandatory reporters 
whether they will then become mandatory reporters of um, domestic abuse, which is, which would end up being a good thing, but I think that's something they just have to take care with in terms of, you know, if you take one or two days of this leave, going back to your house isn't going to... It's not going to... Yeah. You know, I, think, yeah. I think that's a valid, valid point. And that's probably something... I'm sure that, there is a lot of structure around it. I just wanted to pick your brain. Yeah, yeah. You that's a, probably some interagency work that would be done on the policy. Absolutely. So with, with, the, with police and, and with the other people who... who but it's the consultant. perfect step in the right direction. Things like this are, are domino effects and it trickles down into the kids as well. Um, I mean... It's something you have to confront as a teacher a lot, seeing kids in, in those sorts of in, uh, risky environments. And with that sort of thinking, it'll put me out of a job because that's great policy thinking from my man, Joe Boyton. Uh, and that is why uh, he's one of the leading lights in the New South Wales Education Department. Um, but um, moving on there, so we've touched on that. Um, and perhaps one, this is one very close uh, to my heart. Um, there was a substantial development, in my opinion, in relation to the development of a of an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament. So, the Prime Minister um, spoke at the annual Gama Festival in the Northern Territory, uh, often being a place where Prime Ministers and um, and people and sort of places where landmark stuff occurs. Um, certainly in past times, but yeah, certainly the most uh, meaningful one over over recent de- over not recent decades, but over the recent decade, I should say. Um, so he used his speech at the Gama Festival to put forward. A perspective referendum question, saying, and I'll quote this directly, do you support an alteration to the constitution that establishes an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice? Now, it's a very simple question, and it needs to be simple, because that's how referendums succeed. They're simple things, and they're principle-based rather than detail-based. Mm. Um, and his speech was excellent, and I'd just like to quote... Um, a part of it that came across when I was reading through in preparation for this podcast. Uh, let me. This enshrining a voice in the constitution gives the principles of respect and consultation strength and status. Writing the voice into the constitution means a willingness to listen won't depend on who is in government or who is prime minister. The voice will exist and endure outside of the ups and downs of election cycles and the weakness of short-term politics. It will be an unflinching source of advice and accountability. Not a third chamber, not a rolling veto, not a blank cheque, but a body with the perspective and the power and the platform to tell the government and the parliament the truth about what is working and what is not. To To tell the truth with clarity, with conviction, because a voice enshrined in the constitution cannot be silenced. Now, it is just wonderful to actually hear a Prime Minister with some intellect. And I don't like to be biased, but gosh, that, that, that just, th- those words lift off the page because it is, is exactly that, the longevity of the voice, so it won't be toing and froing off the government of the day and what their will and what their determination of what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people should have, should have access to all the laws that affect them. It will actually have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people sitting at the table and having an input about decisions that affect them. That is all it is. Because for too long, policies of intervention, policies you know, that, that led to the stolen generations, they have ripped Aboriginal communities apart. And I think there hasn't been a case. The, the, the best decisions in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander development in terms of a, certainly of a Western perspective in education, employment, in health, in imprisonment, in criminal justice have come from Indigenous communities. Things like the Circle Court, things like the Koori Court, where they have 
an Abri- Aboriginal Torah Shah Islander elders and the, and the network of kinship sitting in the room with the offender and saying, you need to be accountable for your decision. But rather than just throwing them in the jail, they give them 200 hours of community service and make a promise with the elders. That sort of stuff. Right? Aboriginal-led health services, like the mobile dialysis machine that goes through the Northern Territory because kidney disease is a huge thing. Things like the Engineering Aid Summer School that 423 Mum and, and some early work in my university does, I was involved in the Australian Indigenous mentoring experiences, getting Indigenous-led. All these examples of positive development in all those social and economic policy aspects have come from Indigenous voices and Indigenous knowledge. And we can learn a lot from it. And I think this is a step in the right direction. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, mate. Well, you know, that's very powerful what you just said. So I won't, you know, I won't go and try and try and top you or, or anything like that. Everything you said is, has hit the nail on the head. I mean, all I just think about is it's, it's only taken 200 or so years. Um, uh, yeah, it's disappointing. And as you said before, it, it is, it's just a simple step, but... A simple step that was so necessary, a simple step that took too long, but it's never too late. Yeah, that's what I think. So. I think absolutely, um, and and reconcil- you know that, that's a key part of the reconciliation process. And for those, certainly for those parts of the conservative media who have said, "Oh, we need to see more detail," or "What is this actually going to do to solve real issues in the community?" That is just grabbing it, grabbing at straws, because the reality is is that it's not, they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, many would say, including myself, that they are inter- interdependent. By having the voice, you get better outcomes, as I've just explained. Um, yeah, what this, what this does, which is important, it's not, you're not fixing, like it's kind of stepping away from the idea of fixing by intervening, which is what you were, what you were saying before. Rather than this mentality that we have to fix the Indigenous issue in Australia... The gap, like gaps in education, health, and and the rest that you listed before, we've always come at it as a um a fixing sort of thing. Like intervention has to be made, but rather this is more shifting to the more modern idea of like just um representation will fix it and inclusion will fix it, rather than trying to backtrack on things and and stop things um and undo things from the past. We're kind of moving forward and adapting to what we have now, and inclusion is the main part of that, which is huge. Absolutely. And I suppose another point, not opposition, but, you know, like a road blocking rather than being supportive of it, is that people say, well, only eight of 44 referendums have passed since Federation. Well, rather than that, we should look at it through a positive lens. The most successful referendum was the 1967 refer- refer- referendum to count Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the population and the Commonwealth given the ability to make law for them. 91% of people voted yes holding every single state and territory and every single member of parliament supported it. So to have tried, to have not tried because it's too hard or it's too, too hard basket is a greater sin to have tried and failed. And I think that was sort of the sentiment that came through um, in, Al- in Albanese's speech. And I thought that's exactly right because all, all success, people say, you know, success is just the multiple iterations of failure. You know, and, and this is exactly the case. And if we are able to achieve this and avoid, achieve a, you know, Makarata commission uh, and truth-telling process, that will enable those social and economic issues likely to be solved. Because we've seen in the criminal justice ed- examples, the education examples and other employment examples that I'm sure no doubt exist, like my Rumbalara football netball club down there in Shepparton, they've all come from Indigenous-led voices. So 
something we're extremely passionate about, and I hope in a year's time, when the referendum is likely to be held, or around a year's time, that we're talking about it, and it's, it's put, to, put to rest as a sort of the first step in the true healing process, because it's something that uh, has always been a stain on the country's history, um, and I won't have anyone else say otherwise. You can disagree with me, but I'm going to rip shreds off you. I think you'd be, you would be pretty out there to disagree. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, everyone's entitled to your own opinion, yeah. but if you didn't agree with the referendum, yeah. you would have some things to think about broadly in your life. Yeah, well, I think you know? yeah, yeah, there'll be no doubt. There'll be some people who try and steer, you know, steer the uh, politics, so the pol- uh, politics of division. Oh, there will be. Tom. Yeah, there will be. There always is. Yeah, but um, you know, as we saw in the same-sex <coughs> marriage thing, which I think had much more room to be much more divisive. The same-sex marriage club, so I had much more room to be divisive than this. Um, the prevailing common sense. Uh, and you know, fair go nature of the Australian people that is there in, in deeply inside of the Australian culture, despite some people saying otherwise, uh, prevailed, and I'm sure it'll be the case in this time around. Um, so that's that's the first two weeks in uh, in Parliament. I think that's quite a uh, enriching discussion. Huge. Um, we touched on a lot there. There's some work to be done around jobs and skills Australia that was introduced as well, and the, the Treasurer gave an economic statement saying that not everything's rosy, certainly with the with the budget accounts, but I think that deserves to be something closer to the October budget that we discuss um, later on in the year. But we'll just pause there for a moment, and after this short commercial, we'll be back to talk some sports, some Commonwealth Games, and, of course, some rugby league. Do you want to learn how to tackle like your NRL heroes? Well, come on down to the NRL Tackle Up Shop, where you can learn from the best and brightest coaches and rugby league minds in the game. Stop by for Craig Bellamy's Chicken Wing session, where he teaches you how to make a chicken wing like a KFC drumstick. And why don't you go along to Penrith, where they learn how to do low blows, right where the sun don't shine. And why don't you make your way to head north, <laughs> north of the Brisbane River, and go along and learn how to pack Carrigan, so on a hip drop and break their leg. Welcome to the NRL shop, where you can learn how to tackle like your NRL heroes. Fisher Harris taps their, their accidents, you know, and, and in this collision game, I understand that. But you know, where Salmon kicked Tommy, he, he don't on. And I've had history with that kid. I know that kid very well. He's, he was a weak gutted dog as a kid, and he hasn't changed now. He's a weak gutted dog person now. Well, there you have it. Uh, the moment that stirred a bit of controversy over the weekend after Canberra's loss to the high-flying Penrith Panthers, even without their halves. Uh, and it is one of the replacement halves who was at the centre of attention there. Young Jamin Simmon, former Parramatta, uh, backup half there to Dill Brown and Mitch Moses, made his way to the foot of the mountains to back up Nathan Cleary and Jerome Luai, getting a chance now. Uh, and now he's been sprayed. <laughs> well, there's no tomorrow by big Ricky Sticky. Um, I know you've got a lot of thoughts on this, being a Canberra, um, being from Canberra, and, and you know having a lot of your family support the club. I'd love to get your thoughts on this, Joe, and feel free to take as much time as you need, or be as libertarian in your expressions as possible. Yeah, look, mate, look, I think it's play on. That's my that's my original response. It's play on. Um, you know, you know what you're getting with Ricky. Um, and I think what this shows, this whole situation shows, is is just the old amnesia 
that the NRL fan bases in Australia have and just old Australia as a as a whole, you know. You know what you're getting with Ricky. It's not the first time he's given a spray. It's not it will not be the last. Um but I mean it is no excuse, you know, but we want that from Ricky. Tell me, you know, there are there's there's reason to hate what he said, there's reason to be upset, you know, there's reason to think it's it's not great, which it's not. But tell me you didn't love it. Ring well, me now. Ring me <laughs> on my way home. Tell me. Tell me you didn't love it. And if if one person tells me they didn't love it, I'll 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 put the phone down. I'll never speak a word of it again. But <laughs> I think it's good. I I think it's great for the game, Tom. I really do. Um, you know we. <sighs> If you're going to be upset at someone calling someone else a weak gutted dog, should you be watching a violent sport? Should you be watching a sport where you watch people hit each other all night? If you're upset about a weak gutted dog, he didn't he didn't even swear, mm. you know. That's one thing. A dog is a courageous animal. <laughs> you know, <laughs> not in the context it, that Ricky used. To. It just so happens that Jamin Salmon might be a weak gutted dog, so he's still a courageous animal. Yeah. He just seems to have a weak gutted. gutted you know, yeah. weaker insights. Um, and I mean, sh- you know, if you're a weak gutted kid, there's high chances you're going to grow up into a weak gutted person. So, yeah. you know, that's just the natural evolution of <laughs> human life. Um, you know, if you have guts when, you, when you're a young fella, you're probably going to have guts when you're an older fella. No you guts, know, no glory. things work. So does that mean Penrith's chances are over? If, if that natural... Uh, sort of expression goes no guts no glory that's, that's right. pulling pulling they've got Nathan Cleary they'll be right he'll be back for the final series um, what's uh, the uh, backlash in terms of this whole situation is Salmon will Salmon be you know is he because he did kick Tom Starling let's not forget about the egregious act that he committed yeah. I mean it, it, it would be hard to prove that he, he did that intentionally um or between the gonads but there. if you but if you're this is this is what this is what annoys me if you're arm slips up off someone's shoulder and hits someone in the jaw. Yep. You, get, you can get five weeks for it, yep. even though it was, wasn't intentional. I didn't mean to hit you around the yep. chops, mate, but I did, and I'm getting five weeks for it. I'm I think that's a it. situation where it's a defender on an attacker. This guy, he, he just had the ball, he was the attacker, and, and defend, you know, and the other guy, whoever's, I can't remember who's tackling, but he, he, had, he had his leg. I'm not saying that you know, he, he might have lifted his leg, um, and, and he actually on the rebound once he's hit the leg hit the ground he got Starling in the head which was probably looked like more, yeah. more dangerous than me but for me it's just that it happened in the public context where sort of he attacked someone where he didn't have a chance to defend himself and, and for me that warrants a fine suspension you know I was just a poor kid last night I don't know what he, what he defended after he defended North Queensland the North Queensland fiasco a couple of weeks ago so I'm off Kenny that's for sure. And if, I know Kenny's a long time listener. I'll be coming to Dick's Hotel and I'll be flying you. Let's, let's sort this out on the street. Um, that's just me hitting the pavement. Yeah, look, don't, uh, don't but, get me wrong. I, I want to see a young salmon swim upstream. Yeah. Know? But there's going to be grizzly salmon. bears. There's going to be grizzly bears along the way, Tom, that he's going to have to get past. Yeah. And this is one of them. Yeah. This is your first grizzly bear, young Jamin. Yeah. yeah, and I think obviously there was something there. We and the information is key in most things in life. We're not actually privy to the information in relation to what the incident was twelve years ago. However, it was when I think it was seven, it was twelve or thirteen, and there was some incident. It was involving Ricky's family, so it might have involved one of his children. I imagine, and that's provoked such a, you know, a response at this time around. Um, how much blame you contribute to a twelve, thirteen year old? 
you know, maybe his parents were involved as well. I heard it's like a family thing, but can't speculate beyond that. But I do, I do think the NRL picks and cho- picks and choose, or, you know, like sort of um, what what matters it pursues and what matters it doesn't. And that, I suppose, will bring this to a broader context. You know, how I like to link everything to a broader context and how everything goes. Should rugby league have an ICAC or should it? The federal ICAC, when it gets going later this year, have a rugby league division that directly interrogates matters of integrity and corruption in the game of rugby league. Because I tell you why, they have its hands full. We need a lot of resources to do that. Because let's cast our mind back to a few weeks ago when the West Tigers were taking on the North Queensland Cowboys, <laughs> and one of the greatest daylight robberies you will ever see took place at Queensland Country Bank Stadium. The game was over. The game was over. The Tigers 27-26. I had 80 minutes on the clock. Whistle was stopped. Have you ever heard, heard of a short whistle before in your life? They just make stuff up on, on their go. It is unbelievable. And then for Ashley Klein. Ashley Klein, the same guy who cost the Tigers in 2018 round three when he caught Rob, Robbie Rocco not square when he was chasing down a Darius Boyd field goal attempt. And then the, the Broncos did it earlier. Darius Boyd went straight through the ruck. I mean, are you kidding me? And this guy, what does he get? He gets a week. He gets a week on the sideline. This is the same guy that delivered Queensland the origin win because he let Pat Carrigan and Kurt Catewell and, and the other rest of the Queensland forwards just lay on. Lay on. Look, I wouldn't chalk it to that. But are you asking me if they should have a corruption? Well, I'm body? pontificating on an exaggerated level here to prove my point in relation to the hypocrisy that the NRL engages in on a weekly basis. They pick and choose things. They treat things like a PR matter rather than actually solving issues. I'll do my best to shorten my response to that question. Um, no. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't think they should. I think... This is, this is what I think with the NRL right now. I think we're in a situation where too many, you know, again, like we talked about before, Intervention isn't helping, clearly. They're trying to intervene with all these different rules, the head high, the, the this, that, the bloody, the nut kick, the bloody whatever you want. They're trying to intervene. Let the fans decide, Tom. Let the fans decide. Oh, kangaroo court. The fans decide. Like, mate, there wasn't a rugby league fan who thought that the Cowboys fairly won that game. You know? And the uproar from the fans drew a lot of attention to the issue. But and then nothing the changed. Result, yeah, but the result... Nothing hey, changed. did change. He got a week. He got a week. A big whoop de do. Yeah, but a week for a referee. A week, know, a week for who, a referee who's had who's had multiple issues in the past. Not corruption and error. The corruption things. point is obviously something that I'm exaggerating for the proof. The points, Roy and HG point that I'm trying to get to get across to the viewer to prove my dismay and, and engage with some humour with the and apply some political football <laughs> aspect to to the podcast. But what I'm trying to say here is that the the same thing keeps happening. There was a lot of uproar, nothing changed. You know, one of the Manly jumper scenario and they made a big whoop whoop to do of that because someone in the Manly in the Manly marketing team forgot to consult the players and handle it poorly, you know, because of their, their hard right Christian beliefs, you know, but, you know, they jumped onto that. You know, and then all of a sudden the Tiger seems to up and about, you know, then they're saying Tiger should have access to the bunker footage and all, all that sort of stuff. But what's it going to do, though? What, would you strip the Cowboys of the two points? I strip the Cowboys of the two points. Do the Tigers then get the two points? The Tigers get the two points. It, 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 was, it, was, it was as clear as day. There was three or four grounds of Tigers, and it, it really annoyed oh, me the Tigers didn't pursue. You don't know, yeah, Valentine yeah. Holmes was in, was in an offside position when he kicked the ball. So that would have been deemed ineligible. That would have been a penalty of the West Tigers, and that would have been the end of the game there. Right? 
The second thing was there was nothing to challenge. The referee blew, oh, the blew, blew the full-time whistle and then they allowed to go and then it had six or seven Cowboys players. Remember, it's only the captain who's allowed to go up and talk to the referee. They changed that a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear that. And because it was a short whistle, I've never heard anything of a short whistle before in my life. Now, there might be previous times, but certainly not in my time. I never have I heard the term short whistle to, to blow the, you know, an intermediate and stop you in the game. Dane Laurie got tackled with the ball. That's it. Nothing to challenge. Then they challenge it. Connor Falk clearly takes a dive. Asu Kapoa is running towards the ball and Dane Laurie marks it. And then once Felt realises he's not going to get to the ball, runs straight in the back of Asu Kapoa and takes a dive. And then Ashley Klein says, Asu Kapoa makes a clear decision to block <laughs> the, the run of Kyle Felt towards the ball. It is a penalty. Not where Kyle Felt took a dive, where Dane Laurie caught the ball. I mean, you can't write this stuff. You can't write this stuff. It's like a... It's like a comedy show. <laughs> and as far as I'm concerned, buddy, Abdo wouldn't know his left foot from his right foot, but I'm not going to make it personal. I'm just going to talk about the NRL as a whole because it's gone back. So all the, their salary cap punishments are completely inconsistent. If you look at them over time, from the Storm to Parramatta to, to, um, to Manly to the Cronulla Sharks scenario where they're over the cap on the day of the day they won the premiership, because, but they're too much of a week got a dog to take the premiership off the Sharks because, you know, that'd be, you know, horrible for their, you know, 50-year history to be still pre- without a premiership. And then they give the West Tigers a punishment for giving Robbie Rafara a salary cap exemption because they had a rule where you, if you played eight years of junior football at the club, you could discount $100,000 off the salary. But because they changed the name of the competition, even though it was the same, same competition, from the Jersey flag to the Holden Cup, they, they deem that as in, inconsistency and we got a punishment, the same punishment that the Sharks got for being over the cup on the day of the grand final. I mean, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It's just, it, it is unbelievable. And the only reason I still follow it is because I'm a rugby league nut. It's installed in the blood. And uh, as I said, hopelessly devoted to the Tigers despite the grief they continually cause me. And that is what sport is about. And, that, and speaking of the grief that smoking cause, it can also cause, bring about enormous joy. Yeah. Enormous joy. I wouldn't and, know what it feels like. And that is what the Commonwealth Games has brought to us the last fortnight. Are we segwaying? We're segwaying. We how, how was that segue, by the way? That was smooth. That was a great... I've learnt the podcast craft. If anyone's still listening after, I'm just blowing their ears off with my tirade. Um, take that, Kenny. Um, no Parramatta. No, no. Well, well, we can touch on that at the end. We've got a question in from Joel Schiffler at the end in in uh, in the ask ask Joe. Um, oh yes, thank you, Joel. Um, but um, the Commonwealth Games. So Australia finishes on top, sixty-seven gold. Gold, gold, gold. One hundred and seventy plus medals. Gold uh, was the most prominent medal out of the three, which is always what we like to see. You know, people seize in the moment and take on the top set for the podium and not come a second or third because, you know, we don't value those medals. That's right. You know, you've got to win gold or see you later. We it wouldn't matter how we, what other level of, you know, how we let our politicians or we let our rugby league administrators get away with murder. But if you don't win gold, we don't want to hear about it. <laughs> because you know what gold represents to Australia? It's safety. <laughs> it's safety. When I see Ariane Titmus jump in the pool, I feel safe. I feel like a national security issues are, have gone away. You know, I feel like, you know, we're in a safe spot. When I see Emma McKeon jumping the last leg of the 4 by one safety. When I see Kyle Chalmers lining up behind the back of the blocks with his big eagle's wing tattoo with some German on his chest, looking like a big weapon that he is. Um, 
But it, I, feel, I feel safe. When I see Ollie Hall lining up at the 1500 Ollie meter line. Ollie Hall. Ollie Hall. Bruce Hugh McEvaney loved it. He <laughs> loved it. My gosh. Oh, That's, my gosh. I don't know how many times we get excited about athletic events and then inevitably we get a bronze or we just miss out on the medals. But this was one of those occasions. It was special. It was. It was special. 3 minute 30, 1500 meter. One of the fastest 1500 meters ever run. I think the world record's about 328 something. And that's yeah. held by Inga Brustein, that big Nor- not big Norwegian, but Norwegian with a VO2 max probably off the scale. Overall time is, is a great thing though, but I'm just, you know, that, it, I don't, he wasn't digging deep for that time. He was digging deep to yeah. get in front. And boy, did he ever. Yeah, and, and that, it was like a horse coming down the outside. Horse. You know. <laughs> he was coming down, he would just, and you were going with him, you know, I was in the lounge, it was 10 o'clock on a Saturday night, you know, God knows why I wasn't because my social life isn't that much active these days, but I was just cheering with him, you know, I was writing him. newspaper in your hand. I was writing him home like the, like the last at Randwick, you know, kick, kick. <laughs> Kick! And then he got there in the last two strides, and the last two strides are the ones that matter the most. Well, when you got strides as big as his, yeah. two strides is a few of the, you know, the regular folk. That's so, right, exactly, exactly, especially little short strides. We're talking six or seven strides, <laughs> the average male man. Yeah, and to have that sort of heart and the end of a 1500, remember, it also was a, a truly world-class field. He beat the current world champion and the previous world champion um, in the race, there was other stars in the race as well. The only one who was really missing was um, the Norwegian one, who I would say his last name, but I don't want to give him. You can't teach ticker. Yeah, yeah. That's what that race showed us. You yeah, know, you can be a world that. champion. You can teach someone now to be a good runner, Tom, but you can't teach ticker. That's right. All right. And Ollie Hawes got that in spades. Yeah. And, and he did it for his grandfather. Oh my did gosh. <laughs> he did it for he his grandfather. Going. His grandfather just passed away, unfortunately, one or two weeks ago. Ninety-six years old. World War II veteran. He was a life member at the Sutherland Athletic uh, District Athletic Club. Um, used to get the stopwatch out and, and count, you know, Ollie. And no doubt that was a big formative period oh, yeah, in Ollie maybe. becoming the true champion that he is. Oh, yeah, um, and, and how about the call from Bruce McAvaney? That is why he is the best. Mate. He, he matches the moments that is happening before you with the core. I mean, I don't know how many times I've, with Basil commentating in the pool, who continually makes the most incredible moments dull because he just doesn't have the knowledge or the understanding of swimming like others do. You have Bruce. And even when he said, how lucky we are, how lucky we are to witness that. That was fantastic. I had the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. When he was saying, he joins Herb. He joins Herb as the only other Australian to win the 1500 of the Commonwealth Games. 64 years we've waited. 64 years. (laughs) Um, that was well, that's that's and that's the highs that we're talking about at the sport. That's why we're continually tuning into it. That's why the broadcast rights for sporting deals are continue to go up and up because we live for those human moments. We do, man. It's what we're taught. It's what we're taught. But that wasn't the only goal. There were sixty six other goals. Now I'm not going to run through all the other sixty six goals <laughs> as much as I'd love to. But I'm going to talk about some of our other top moments. Mama Stenson, Jess Stenson, previously Jess Trengrove. Samantha herself is one of Australia's marathon greats, winning the women's marathon, um, probably what, two years after becoming a mum. Now, I was speaking to the old girl about this before, before we came on air, um, and you talk about the strength that being a mum brings. It's a different level of strength. Like you're given birth and you have that responsibility and the iron will, let alone the stuff that sort of women have to go through ordinarily. I often say, as a generalisation, you know, I love to pontificate and generalise, 
even though I'm an economist, I probably should do the opposite, is um, the, the, the strength and the intestinal fortitude that women have, I think is greater than men. I think, I think women are much more inherently driven and intrinsically motivated, and that shines through in a performance like this from Jeff Stenson. Now, obviously, that's a huge generalisation. There's going to be exemptions to that, but it's just certainly my experience, I, I, think, I think, is the case. And Jess, I heard her speak on the back page last night, and she is an outstanding ambassador for the sport, mm-hmm. an outstanding Australian. As Roy and HD would say, she is an upstanding Australian. And um, that was a fantastic moment. And one of my favourite events, and I'll let you get your thoughts on this, I'm not sure if you follow the swimming, but Kyle Chalmers, big boy status reclaimed. Now, I would say he's probably never lost big boy status, but he's just come across one of the best to ever do it in Caleb Dressel at the last World Championships and in the Olympics where he lost by the barest of margins. But a silver to Caleb Dressel to me is a goal in any other event. But he came out, he delivered, he's got some more tats on him. It's, it's big boy status, it's alpha. When he lines up behind the blocks, I feel safe, as I said before. <laughs> He, he's just like, it's the 100 metre freestyle, it's the big boys, you know, some of that toxic masculinity, you know. It's that's, like the heavyweights. That's right. The UFC going at it. You when, know? I, when I see him line up, if I was lining up next to the block, I'd be like, please Kyle, don't beat me up. <laughs> don't beat me up, Kyle. Um, he did a 47.5, did a 47.3 in the semi. Um, that is top class. Would have won the world championships this year with his time, with Dressel being out, uh, and young Popovici winning. Um, and I'll tell you what. If I'm not there in Paris in 2024, we make sure that I'm, I'm there to watch it on TV because Dressel v Chalmers, the decider... It's going to go down, man. Oh, I tell you what, that is going to be spectacular right in the heart of Paris. Big dogs will be eating in Paris. <laughs> Big dogs will... <laughs> um, Arnie, Arnie, what, what a combination. Ariane Titmus and Dean Boxer. Not Arnie Schwartz. Well, she may, she, she may well be Arnie Schwarzenegger because she is... A weapon of mass destruction when she goes out there. She has, I talk about it a lot because I don't have it. Um, and I'm not sure many Australian athletes do, but she has the killer. When she goes out there, it's personal. She smells blood, mate. Yeah, yeah. As much as she doesn't want to admit it and she comes across nice, and I'm sure she is very nice, when she goes in that pool, it is a personal but contest. They're the ones you got to look out for. Exactly. The ones who seem nice. But just terminate. Yeah. They're the scary ones, mate. That's right. And that's why she's a terminator. And she did the two, 400, and the 800. Uh, triple, as well as obviously in the, in the 4 by 200 gold in the relay team. Um, so it took home four gold. Spectacular. Now, Molly O, he got, he got silver in the race. Lost by 0.1 of a second. Came at Arnie, but she held off. She is coming. Five gold. Five gold she took home. So that was um, sensational. Emma McKeon became the most successful gold medal winner. 14 gold she's got at the Commonwealth Games now. Obviously going on top of her individual performance which is one of the best ever at the Tokyo Olympics and the cycling team was on the rebound Matthew Glatzer what an absolute star he was coming back from a crash to win the uh, one kilometre time trial in under a minute on sprint bars now not the time trial bars the Australian team had a mishap he he won the race on the, the wrong equipment now that is a hallmark of a legend so that's that's a quick comment wouldn't know about anything about cycling but yeah. if you're riding the bike faster than the other bloke and you yeah, win yeah. medals, I'm happy. Yeah. If you're doing it for for Australia, if you're doing it for the green and gold, I'm all, I'm all here for Absolutely. It. And we also dominated on the road in, in the in the cycling as well. The girls, Georgie Baker came home with three gold, including in the road race, and she had a lead-out lead out sprint of six. Now, it's one of my favourite things ever to watch the lead-out, when they have the lead-out and they ping off each other, <laughs> and then they have the two, and then they're over the bike going like this, sa, sa, sa. It was unbelievable. Um, it's another again moment of sport, but what a fantastic two weeks! I based my whole work schedule around the Commonwealth Games, so I allowed to work that you know flexible work, you know that sort of gear. 
Um, we'll leave that there. Now, we are reaching towards uh, the back end of the potty. Uh, we were going to discuss whether Leicat should get a billion-dollar makeover, but perhaps we'll leave that for some more rugby league Leicat discussion next time. We will finish with one question that came in from Joel. Now, we had hundreds of questions come in, but we decided to go with long-term listener, we Joel Schiffler. We can't answer them all, unfortunately. We just can't. Um, we've written a few emails back to you. Thanks, so thanks for getting them in. Um, but uh, we've got Joel coming in here from, from London in the UK. He says, Joe, I would love to get your take on Parramatta's chances this year. We seem to be very hot and cold. Uh, and will Isaiah Papali'i backflip on his contract? Well, Joel, you're coming to the right person, mate. I've, I've been doing backflips all year, you know. Win, loss, win, loss. I'm your typical para fan. I hate them when they're down. I love them when they're up. Right now, we're up. We're flying. We've just ripped the wings off the seagulls' backs and we've put them on our own, and I reckon we're a good chance, mate. I reckon getting Mitch Moses back, we're in a similar situation with Cleary and, uh, and Penrith, but I think what Moses adds is a little bit you know, more important to our team just as, as he runs our offence. You know, Jake Arthur held his own on the weekend, which I'm happy about. Wasn't happy to see our fans getting into him, even though I'd prefer Mitch any day of the week. But um, I back us, mate. When we're at our best, we're, we're looking good, and I think we're losing a few key players next year, so it's a bit of incentive for a lot of our guys to stand up, um, you know, and maybe maybe take us that extra step this year before we consi- uh, considerably lose a little bit of strength. But I'm, I'm riding high right now, and I think we got a good shot. I think we need to, you know, plant our flag in the ground on our run home because we got a tough run home. But um, if we can pick up a, a win or two in this next few weeks without Mitch, I think we'll be looking pretty good coming finals time because we can still inch into that top four. And um, knowing Parramatta's streakiness, I think having... Um, a top four spot for us is crucial right now just, just because of our, our inability to win back-to-back games. So, you know, if we, if we won that first game of the, of the finals, that week one, giving us a week off to kind of regroup and prepare for the next would be absolutely astronomical. And we've shown that we can beat those top four teams as we're, you know, what, yeah. two from two against Penrith, one from one against Melbourne. We got Melbourne, Melbourne in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So, Joel... Hang in there, mate. I'm all here with you. Yes, that's right. And for those long-suffering Tigers fans on the call here today or listening in, um, I'm with you there as well. And, you know, if you need a shoulder to lean on and listen to some Olivia Newton-John, um, I'm here for you. But, yeah, on Parramatta, obviously their best, you can match it with the best in the game. Um, their worst is that. So I do think that break in the finals, if they do manage to get into the top four there, um, you know, winning that first week will be crucial to, the, to viability. There's a shot, Tom. Yeah, There's yeah. a shot. And my boy, I tell you, if, you, if we win this year, we're on. Yeah. We just need an incentive for other players to come to our club. If right we win, now. I'm not sure if I'll ever no, see. If you guys win, I'm not sure I'll ever see you after Green Final Day again. because of I the, don't know if I'll live through it. <laughs> I don't. Um, and for our under-18 listeners out there, um, you know, I'm not encouraging the, the, the sort of binge approach to alcohol consumption, but I will be... On the circuit. Red hot that yeah, yeah. night. Paramount um, Leagues. Yeah, if, if it ever happens. Yeah, yeah. It will <laughs> I mean, happen. I mean, it will happen. But as far as Isaiah Papali, I wish he would backflip, but I don't think he can now. I think it's too late, if I'm not, if I'm not incorrect. Um, 
God, I wish he, he would stay because I feel like he's just going to a graveyard. Um, but, you know, that's his, that's his choice. He'll live with it. And um, he can hang on to see if Benji has, has a backbone as a coach. Yeah. And we'll just delete the last 15 seconds of that, of that discussion right there because <laughs> that is blasphemy in here in Chickwood Docker. Um, but, yeah, that's it for this week's podcast. Uh, it's been a great podcast. I know it's uh, been a while since we've had one, but I'm sure this will whet the appetite uh, in the interim phase and as we head into final season and some, some more sitting weeks in the coming weeks for Parliament, uh, plenty of policy and sport to be discussed because when you have those two things, what else do you need? That's right, baby. Happy Rugby League and go well and go right this weekend. And go power.